Hey listeners, it turns out that our collective action can stop more than just global pandemics. Discover reasons for hope on the climate crisis with Heat of the Moment, a new series from FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. So Amy, how was your porridge? It was perfect. It's it's the perfect food. This is extremely Scottish. Like this is the food of your ancestors. It's like this is like rice in southern China and dumplings in northern China. It is. Yeah, exactly. It's, fu- uh, it's fueled my ancestors through many, uh, many centuries in the fields. Through the cruel years of English oppression. Yes. <laughs> and then the cruel years of oppressing others for the British Empire. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard carrying a chip on your shoulder, so you really have to fuel up with some carbs in the morning, you know? <laughs> Just get out. <laughs> Resent- resentment porridge. Yeah. <laughs> Good fuel this for the gray soul. slop reminds me of all that my people have suffered. That explains a lot of traditional food. <laughs> yes, definitely. So now I am fortified to podcast. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, a deputy editor at Foreign Policy. I thought you were senior editor. No, I'm, I'm, I got technically promoted. Though it Ooh. was confusing because everybody always thought that senior editor was above the deputy editors anyway. Oh, congratulations. I know. Okay, I'll go back to the script. Right, go back. <laughs> On today's episode, we're going to look ahead to the light at the end of what is admittedly still a very long tunnel. We're going to look at the question of When can countries begin to ease their lockdowns and what has to be done before that can happen? Later on, we'll be joined by Emily Feng from NPR and Dr. Wafa El-Sadr, a professor of epidemiology and medicine at Columbia University. But first this. The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts. So James, it's so good to have you back. Your absence has really made it abundantly clear that I have no banter of my own, by the way. Oh, bless. I'd assumed that you'd just sort of been talking to yourself in like quarantine madness. You know, I have, like, like Gollum in Lord yeah. of the Rings. Just like, and what does, what do you think, Amy? You know, well, I've more, I've preferred the uh, Dobby the house elf from Harry Potter sitting in my podcast closet muttering away to myself. Just like, Amy doesn't like this. Amy is free elf. Oh, 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 oh. I'm going to put a, when I leave the biscuits out for you, I'll put a sock out too. It's, oh. Uh, Thanks. Um, How are you feeling, by the way? So the irritating thing with COVID is it has a long tail. So the worst of the symptoms is over. I'm not shaking or suffering chills as I was. And I'm not coughing, um, not badly coughing. But the tiredness and the weakness is really persistent. It lasts for up to a month. Uh, I haven't been properly out of the house yet, but I'm allowed to do so this weekend. And, you know, I'm going to... Try and go for a walk, though I'm not certain if I'll make it more than a couple of blocks without sort of rest. I went mm. up and down the stairs the other day and, and had to sit down for a while afterwards. 
So it's just a, a long recovery. And with some people, I mean, generally more severe cases, so I hope I'm okay. It's so early in the, mm-hmm. the course of this disease, we, of course, don't know. Does the, does the lung damage persist for months? Does it persist for years? Are people rendered sterile? You know, all this kind oh, of wow. thing. Oh, yeah, there's all any number of questions. Oh, gosh. Most of all, it seems to be a, a virus that you know, really varies so strikingly from person to person. I mean, people who get nothing and people who, you know, die and then in this enormous range in between. I mean, do you take comfort in the fact that Wuhan was able to lift its lockdown two weeks ago? Yes, I mean, you know, Wuhan was tremendously badly hit. We still don't really know how bad it was. Mm. There's talk of, you know, perhaps up to 20 or 30,000 dead there. And the city does seem to be coming back to life to some degree, as the rest of China is, though still with all these different measures and divides in place to prevent a, a resurgence of the disease. It was remarkable, as we'll hear in a, in a moment when I spoke with Emily Feng from NPR. Um, when we spoke, she was in Wuhan, and when she goes back to Beijing, she's going to have to be sealed into her apartment. They're going to use like a little strip of paper you know, to make sure they know that she hasn't stepped over the threshold of her apartment um and i was just thinking like those kind of measures western countries are never going to be able to implement that however effective they may be it's just going to be seen as a red line too far for civil liberties yeah and i think also of course you know things like movement restrictions theoretically exist within china even in normal times i mean the residence permit system although it's much less enforced you're technically supposed to go and register with the police whenever you go and stay at a friend's house overnight mm-hmm. uh, under the Chinese system. And normally, of course, that's ignored, only yeah. enforced under certain circumstances. But with COVID, you know, those systems have suddenly become useful in that ability to impose limits. You know, the other thing just in, in China, of course, it's much easier to monitor people in the cities because everybody lives in compounds you know they live in places with Mm. a single controllable exit and with neighborhood committees that can go around and do the monitoring yeah i did uh i I felt panicky just at the thought of being confined to my actual apartment and never being able to step outside for two weeks it just well you know having just been through it it's not so bad oh yeah i mean when when did you last go outside march 20 8th, I think, 26th, something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I took the trash out yesterday, so that was like literally my first time under the sky for mm-hmm. several weeks. But yeah, I mean, you know, you just have to disappear into the world of the internet, Amy. You just have to argue a lot on Twitter. So I wanted to get a sense of what it was like in Wuhan when after months of death and fear and illness, the city was able to start gradually reopen. So I spoke to NPR's Emily Feng, who was in Wuhan on the day the lockdown ended. So Emily, give me a sense now in Wuhan, what is the atmosphere like outside on the streets? The the atmosphere is is returning to normal. People are coming back out into the streets. If you go to some of the more lively shopping areas, people are now drinking their coffees outside and walking their dogs and bringing their young children out. More and more people are driving, but people are still really cautious, even though they're venturing out of their homes now. They're still wearing masks, goggles, gloves. Not a small number of people are wearing full medical protective gowns, even if they're just going grocery shopping. And people I talk to still... They talk about, I mean, today, for example, I had coffee with a guy who 
his wife had given birth during the peak of the outbreak and he was terrified she was going to get infected in the hospital and they were hoarding food and they couldn't buy enough supplies and he was afraid that he couldn't feed his family. Those scars, those psychological scars still remain, even though he was out on a sunny day wearing a T-shirt, drinking a coffee out in the open, which was a wonderful thing to experience for him. But he couldn't leave behind the nearly three months of emotional trauma he's gone through. And the other thing is there are still a number of lockdown measures in place in the city. Right. So tell me about that. What measures are still in place, restrictions on people's movement? So as of last Wednesday, people could leave the city if they had a healthy um if they had a clean health history over the last two weeks. But some people still have pretty stringent restrictions on movement, even within within their residential compounds. And this is true not just of Wuhan, but true of many larger cities, including Beijing across China. So many people who have not been able to restart work find themselves unable to leave their residential compounds for more than two hours at a time. Officials here are still advising residents of Wuhan not to leave their homes unless they have urgent, necessary business Mm. and to enter any kind of public space, whether that's a hotel, a taxi, a grocery store. You've got to show that you have not been in contact with sick people over the last two weeks and you haven't been to a highly infected area. And you do that by scanning this government sanctioned app that um, Mm. records. Well, it's actually not not clear what it records, but it. It requires your real name and your ID number. Unfortunately, it does not take passport numbers, so it's actually kind of difficult for me to get around sometimes. But using your ID number, which you have to provide for a lot of things in China, a lot of services, it'll um, tabulate a health history for you. Right. You mentioned that it's been a little bit difficult for you to move around sometimes. Could you just expand on, on why that is? The problem with that app is it is geared towards Chinese citizens. So it requires a a Chinese ID number, which is kind of like a social security number. I don't Mm -hmm. have that, obviously. I have a passport number. So every time I enter a a small, quiet residential street or I I get into a taxi, I have to explain to people, can you please take me even though I don't have this government sanctioned app? Hmm. So you even have to show this app even if you want to go into a street? For certain streets, yes. Um, a lot of a lot of residential streets remain barricaded off in Wuhan, and you've got to get your temperature taken and, and show this app to get in and out. And you see similar policies and similar apps being developed in other regions and other cities, but the implementation is very local. It's the neighborhood committee, which is kind of this mm-hmm. ultra local grassroots. Um, a committee of busybodies, basically, who <laughs> normally oversee things like domestic disputes, but in times like these have been given enormous responsibility of overseeing neighborhood affairs. They're the ones implementing the scanning, making sure that no one walks past without getting their temperature taken, and even telling people whether or not they can enter their own homes. So, for example, wow. when I get, get, get when I get back to Beijing, the people who must make a record of my entrance and, and make sure that I home quarantine and come by and take my temperature each day and even deliver my groceries to my door because my door is going to be sealed off for 14 days. That's the neighborhood committee. They've been given this real responsibility during this epidemic. So when you go back to Beijing, you're going to have to quarantine and by quarantine, literally not pass the threshold of your front door of your apartment. Yes. In some cases, they've even put cameras outside people's doors. Some people say they've gotten these electronic locks um, installed on their door that senses when they open and close the door. My neighborhood committee has told me they'll just put a paper seal and um, they'll change the paper seal every day after they deliver groceries. So it really depends Mm -hmm. on where you live. That's incredible. So that's the kind of steps China has had to take to get a handle on its 
on its coronavirus outbreak, which steps which I just think in, in Europe and the United States are going to be completely unthinkable, the idea of sealing people into their apartments. Right. Yeah, it's it's a high price to pay. And it's been one that people in China have been very, very willing to pay. Mm. Beijing right now is one of the last cities that's doing this, unfortunately. Like if I lived in Shanghai, I wouldn't have to do this, which is a little frustrating. But mm. Beijing being the political capital is very, very wary of any new cases. Right. So China has been reporting remarkably low case numbers over the past few weeks. But how reliable are they? Do you think we can trust them on this now that they have declared the outbreak to be more or less over? I think that the numbers show an accurate trend. Mm. So they tell us reliably whether there are more infections and the numbers are accelerating or if they're declining. Are they perfectly accurate? No. I'm sure that there has been a good amount of underreporting, in particular because although China has made testing very accessible now, testing in the early months of the testing in the early weeks of the outbreak was very difficult to come by. These tests are still not accurate, but they certainly were not widely available in January and even up to mid-February. So uh, people that I interviewed said that they were certain they had relatives die of COVID-19 before they could get tested right. and before they could get into the official statistics. This is not a problem unique to China, though. This is happening in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one, I think, big reason contributing to undercounting in China. And the other big factor contributing to undercounting is the lack of understanding about asymptomatic carriers of the virus who can still be infectious but show no symptoms. So it's been very difficult to find every case in China. And China has not, um, China until yesterday did not release the total number of asymptomatic cases they had. That was NPR's Emily Feng, who was in Wuhan on the day the lockdown ended. And so I just want to point out that Emily and I spoke on Thursday, which was before uh, the city of Wuhan revised up the death toll from the coronavirus by 50% on Friday. By exactly 50%. Yeah, what do you make of that? Well, when China's put up previous numbers, the data has been presented in such a way that makes it quite obvious that the figure isn't real. Mm -hmm. You know, you've had these very exact rises or these exact patterns, yeah. which some people have speculated is a signal by the scientists or the statisticians who are involved in compiling these numbers hmm. for the world not to take that data as accurate, like that they're actually trying to signal to the outside world the danger involved here. Right. Uh, that could be true. It could just be laziness. <laughs> um, but it does seem a little suspicious. And of course, there's been speculation that the Wuhan death toll could be as much as, you know, sort of 20 or 30,000. And the truth is, we'll probably never know. Mm. I mean, quite apart from the inability of the Chinese government to present information accurately, particularly bad information or negative information, there's just the difficulty in encountering in these chaotic circumstances. I mean, in Tangshan in 1976, which I wrote about in my second book, the official death toll, I think, was 256,000 from the earthquake. But the real figure is likely to be somewhere between sort of half a million and three quarters of a million. And that wasn't even sort of really deliberate malice. It was just an inability to, you know, go through the countryside and Mm. count all the people who had died. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this really may also be the case with Wuhan. But do you think that we can believe, if not the specific numbers that we're seeing from China? I mean, to be fair... New York did this as well when overnight the death toll spiked and it was partly due to a revision in numbers and taking into account people who died at home. Of course. Nobody knows 
to the individual person, I think, how many people have died. But so notice, do you I think- mean, notice that New, New York, which is about the same size as Wuhan, hmm. increased the death toll by almost as many people as China claims have died in Wuhan as a whole. But I mean, I think, as Emily said, you know, the general trend we can mm. get from the numbers, the fact that Wuhan was the epicenter, there was this huge steep increase and then decline and that we haven't seen so far significant outbreaks in the rest of China and the numbers do seem to be broadly under control. We do think that that's true. So you can right. look at the trend, even if you don't believe the specifics, even if you think that the real numbers are, you know, three or four times higher, they're still going up or down on roughly in roughly the way that the Chinese government has presented. Mm. I mean, you think they'd be smart enough to catch out the fact that it's a bit suspect if your increase is exactly 50%. I mean, it reminds me of when I was a teenager and we'd make fake IDs and we made a point <laughs> of making sure that we weren't all born on this, you know, in the same month, in the same year, because that mm-hmm. might raise suspicions. We had to kind of have a natural scatter yeah, you pattern. wanted an idea that showed you were sort of 20 or 19, not exactly 18. Too. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, But I, I mean, I think the thing is, it, it depends both on, are you, on do you face any consequences for these numbers not seeming real? Because if not, you know, you might as well do the laziest work possible. I mean, mm. I've edited Chinese presentations to the UN before that were just copied off Wikipedia <laughs> um, because nobody involved in the process cared. Right. So, you know, I mean... I do think that there's some signaling on the part of the technical staff involved. Mm, interesting. Um, but also the world is a crazy place. Who knows? Maybe it just happened that they found exactly half that number. I it guess, yeah. It just seems unlikely. <laughs> so I don't know about you, but I keep talking, you know, when I'm discussing this with friends or my boyfriend, I keep talk- we keep talking about like when this is over as if there's going to be like one day and it's going to be a switch flipped and it's like, okay, we can now go back to normal again. Um, even though I know that it's not going to be like that, that it's going to be months and months, possibly even way into next year before we can consider going back to mass public events. And even then, in the meantime, socialising, going out to dinner, going out for a drink is probably going to be pretty complicated for a long time. Um, And that, I don't know, I find that the hardest part is just not knowing when this is going to end and whether or not we're going to be quick enough to do the things that need to be done before they can lift the lockdowns in the United States and Europe. And I think we have to face this possibility too of this sort of, you know, yo-yo where before we can lift things, we have to have certain assumptions. We have to assume that, you know, the outbreak has been contained in that area to a point where we're monitoring like most of the cases, where Mm -hmm. new cases have to be able to be rapidly identified and quarantined. And you have to, I think, be able to control movement. That's one of the trickiest things in the United States that, I mean, you know, D.C., for instance, only has, I think, about 2,000 official cases at the moment. But even if in in four weeks, you know, the number of active D.C. cases is very small, people can turn up from much more badly hit areas like Georgia or New York at any time. Yeah. Um, and it's it's very tricky legally, morally, to impose the kind of limits on travel that might be needed. Yeah. Well, on last week's episode, um, Betsy Stevenson, the economist, likened the kind of patchwork lockdown that we've seen in the US as having a, a peeing section of a swimming pool. Like, it just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really work like that. Um, and I think cities like DC, New York are going to be especially vulnerable because a they have 
a high amount of international travel coming in and out. But also they're closely linked. You know, in New York, you talk about the tri-state area. In D.C., you talk about the, the DMV, the D.C., Maryland, when, Virginia area. So, you know, the D.C. mayor could do an utterly cracking job of mm-hmm. handling D.C.'s outbreak. But all it takes is for something to to slip through the net in Virginia or Maryland, which is, you know, I within think- a few miles away uh- and... Boom, we're hit again. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why we've seen these kind of coalitions of governors emerge, mm. especially, of course, because the federal government has been so criminally inept in handling everything. And um, we've yeah. seen these kind of subnational networks of bipartisan governors emerging to coordinate their responses for exactly this purpose. And now, in theory, of course, the Fed, you know, that's the role that the federal government should have is coordinating and controlling these kind of things. But with that hollowed out by Trumpism and by the the lunacy of the far right in government, that simply can't exist in the United States at the moment. And we're having to almost reinvent the system exactly to solve these kind of problems. You know, one of the problems in DC, of course, is the more privileged people are, the more given they are to ignoring limits or thinking that they don't apply to them. And we've seen this all over the world. We've seen, in fact, politicians be super spreaders or powerful mm-hmm. people, not just, I think, because they, they come into contact with more people, but because they're more likely to think that the rules don't apply to them. I mean, you look at Rand Paul going for a swim in the Senate gym the same day he took his COVID test. And as we get to that point of sort of lifting measures, places like D.C., which have concentrations of the powerful, I think actually going to be even more vulnerable to that. You know, you have this sort of level whereby, yes, the poor are sometimes forced into those positions by necessity, but the powerful are going to ignore limits just out of arrogance. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about a lot of the social distancing guidelines is it's to protect the vulnerable, but it's also to protect the stupid from themselves as well. Exactly. And I mean, not just the stupid, I think, but that sort of um, willful ignorance that kind yeah. of arrogance that we've seen, you know, from, from the people who, you know, were predicting 500 deaths in the United States based on their own magical maths, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, we've all seen the stories about people going to what coronavirus parties or and there's one kind getting of the coronavirus. Viral, viral video of people licking toilet seats, which aside from being utterly repulsive in itself, um, was supposed to be some kind of coronavirus defiance thing. Anyway... So to help answer some of these questions about what needs to be done before countries can begin to lift their lockdowns, I spoke over Skype to Dr. Wafa El-Sadr, a professor of epidemiology and medicine at Columbia University and director of the Mailman School of Public Health's International Centre for AIDS Care and Treatment Programs. You know, what is the key to countries being able to reopen their economies? Is a consistent drop in the rate of new infections enough? Or do we need to see something else, like better progress on testing or contact tracing, things like that? There's a need to look at a lot of different metrics. And um, I would say some of the, maybe the simple ones are the ones that uh, many people are aware of, like like checking on um, the numbers of new infections per day is a very important metric. But Mm -hmm. that, of course, is only measuring the numbers of confirmed cases of COVID-19. But that's an important metric to follow. I think another one is the number of deaths uh, day in day, by day is also important. The numbers of hospitalizations are also important to look at. 
at the same time, uh, there's the need to also be, um, be building an infrastructure and a capability to be able to, um, to respond um, and continue to respond to this epidemic um, moving forward. And one of the ways of, of really being prepared to respond is to um, increase the capacity for testing. That's really important because I keep reminding everyone is the numbers we see are the numbers of confirmed cases. And as you know, in many, many parts of the world, it is only people who are quite sick uh, that mm -hmm. are getting the opportunity to get tested. So we probably have many, many, many more cases of COVID-19 that are unconfirmed at present. So having the capacity to test more people and loosening up the requirements for testing would be very important, mm -hmm. as well as also uh, the public health capacity to be able to um, mobilize to track every case uh, and then be able to do contact tracing and to make sure that people who are either um, who are infected or their contacts are able to uh, be isolated or quarantined as appropriate over time. What do you make of the idea that some countries have proposed of having immunity passports so people who have had COVID-19 and have recovered of giving them a kind of a stamp of approval or something, some kind of document saying they've had it, they now have a degree of immunity, they are okay to move around in the, in the community. I mean, do we know enough yet about how this disease works to say that once somebody's had it, they're safe to go out into the wider world? We don't have sufficient uh, data now to be able to say somebody who has evidence of a prior infection, meaning that they have a, a serologic test that's positive, but they are protected. Right. I think we're going to learn uh, more as we move ahead by uh, some of the studies that are being planned now, like the convalescent plasma studies, where uh, recovered uh, patients are uh, volunteering to give their uh, some of their plasma that is then going to be infused uh, uh, among others who have been close contacts of cases or infused in uh, patients with COVID-19. And hopefully through these studies, we'll be able to actually see if convalescent plasma overall uh, may be protective against developing uh, COVID-19 in some of these studies that include uh, close contacts of cases. So we have a ways to go to be able to, to say to someone, Yes, you're antibody positive, therefore therefore you're protected. I think that's we're not there yet. I mean, a, a lot of people are really pinning their hopes on the development of a vaccine. Um, but I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, the kind of number that's being floated is a year to maybe 18 months. But even if we do have a vaccine developed within that time, how long before it's available to the wider public before I could go to my local clinic and say, hey, give me the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, I think it's, uh, I'm optimistic about a vaccine because we yeah. we know how to develop vaccines against viruses like this. This is very mm -hmm. different from trying to develop a vaccine against HIV, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and I think once we have a safe and effective vaccine, I am also fairly confident that then there'll be a a ramping up of production of this vaccine in a very at a very large scale. Now we still will have to think about who to prioritize, and obviously there are some subpopulations that we need to prioritize. I would say uh, we know that there's particularly vulnerable groups uh, who, if they get infected, they have much worse outcomes. So we'll need to have, even though I anticipate there'll be a rapid scale up of production, but we still have to 
have a priority list and make sure that the people who are most vulnerable and most likely to have very difficult uh, sequelae from infection and, and have very high mortality rates, that they're the ones who are at the front of the line. I think people also are thinking of treatments also because we're likely to um, to see treatments before we see vaccines. Oh, interesting, yeah. Um, yeah, because obviously um, there's a lot of work now on trying to identify antivirals uh, that are specific and act against this virus. And uh, treatment studies are much shorter uh, than uh, vaccine studies. And there's a lot of work now uh, going on to take kind of off the shelf different uh, compounds and test them against the virus. And hopefully uh, there'll be compounds identified soon that would be effective for treatment. And and I think having an effective treatment will make up a very big difference as well. That was Dr. Wafa El-Sadr speaking over Skype. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Monday. And in the meantime, head over to foreignpolicy.com where you can see all the previous episodes of Don't Touch Your Face, as well as our brand new podcast, Heat of the Moment, which brings you stories from the front lines in the fight against climate change. That's an FP Studios podcast produced in partnership with the Climate Investment Funds. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm Joseph Palmer. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands. And don't touch your face. <laughs>